everyone. This is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad you're joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God is saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you've fallen more in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Daniel, and today's episode is Daniel chapter 2. So this chapter starts off on an adventure. It's in the second year of King Nebi's reign, and he had a dream that troubled him. And he wanted to know what in the heck was going on, so he called in all the magic bringers to tell him what it meant. This was the diviner priests, the mediums, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. He brought in everyone. Now, a diviner was someone tasked with the job of interpreting messages they believed were being communicated by the gods. We call these entities demons or fallen angels. Some of the practices included dropping oil on water and observing the shape that formed, burning incense and watching the smoke that arose, um, sacrificing animals, observing their organs. All of these things um, were centered around consulting the dead or wanting to get revealed knowledge. Now, we talked about in the last episode that this practice is dangerous because what you are coming in contact with is a fallen entity. And that we know that their job is to kill, steal, and destroy any truth of God's word. And so we really need to only find out the mysteries of this world through the truth in God. And so all of these guys end up telling him, that they need to know the dream. And he says, oh no, you're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And this shocks them because who has ever done that? And there's a couple of theories out there of why King Nebuchadnezzar did it that I found interesting. One was that maybe he didn't remember his dream. Have you ever woken up and you just knew that you dreamed something really creepy and disturbing, but couldn't remember what it was? Um, Other people suspect that this is the beginning of his reign. These were his dad's advisors, and he's trying to figure out who he can trust and build his own team. But nonetheless, they tell him this was an impossible task, and because of this, he threatens their life because they couldn't deliver. Now, Daniel was quick on his feet because when the captain of the guard comes in to get him and his friends, he ends up asking for time to, to pray about this. This was a bold ask and it was granted to Daniel. So that also shows the favor that he had. He also makes it clear that he is going to pray to the God of heaven. He is going to pray to the Hebrew God and he is exalting God above all the other gods in doing this. And he ends up inviting his friends to pray with him. And because of this, God reveals the dream to Daniel in a vision. We go to verse 28, and he says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel gives all the glory and credit to God in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. He reminded Nebi that it was even um, Nebi thinking about the end days before he went to bed that night. And God revealing this through the dream that he gave him. So it was all, Daniel was pushing all glory back to God. A couple of takeaways I got was that the fact that Daniel's first response was to pray. It wasn't to panic. It wasn't to make a game plan with his friends. He simply went to God first. Sometimes in my life, I simply think I've got this. I can handle it. And then when I see that my efforts are falling short, I turn to God. Secondly, Daniel's response was to get his friends to pray with him. This reminded me of Acts chapter 12, 
when we see a group of Peter's friends gather at John Mark's house and they pray for him because he's in prison and an angel set him free, we can see clearly through scripture that there is power in prayer in numbers. We also see that Daniel's third response was that he thanked God for the answer. No time had gone by without him forgetting where this answer came from and giving God all the glory. And we see a little um, section in this chapter where Daniel says a prayer, it's kind of like a poem, and it glorifies God. It gives God glory for his wisdom that he is the revealer of mysteries. Remember, we need to gain our insight and knowledge of this world through him because he is ultimate truth and he knows what we can handle. Any other way to gain knowledge apart from Christ is going to lead us astray. This leads me back to the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted tempted Eve and said that you will be like God. You will know, you will have the knowledge of good and evil if you eat of the fruit. And simply put, we can only know the mysteries of this world accurately through Christ or through our relationship with God. He also um, highlights God's power. He gives him credit for the one changing seasons and times and determines history events and what will happen. And he determines how long each phase in history will last. He controls the destiny of the nations and he sets up and deposes kings. We are going to see this play out like no other book of the Bible as we continue on our study. But it is God who put King Nebuchadnezzar on the throne and it would be God who dethrones him in the fullness of time. So this next section is about the dream. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar thought it was a terrifying dream. He pictured um, a, a figure that had a head of gold. It was pure gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and fired clay. And then Daniel reveals that as Nebuchadnezzar was looking at the statue, a stone broke off without hands touching it, and struck the statue on the feet and clay and crushed them on the iron of, I'm sorry, on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. The iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were then shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. It, they, this statue ultimately turned to dust and then the wind carried them away and a trace of it cannot be found. Verse 35 is where it gets exciting. It says, but the stone that crushed the statue became a great mountain and filled the earth. Okay, this is where we're going to nerd out for a minute. Because to the ancient world, when they hear that this stone became a great mountain, it meant something to them. We just think, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to look like a mountain Colorado. But this was something very common in the belief system of all the people of the ancient days. There is this term in academia called the cosmic mountain. All ancient religions believe that their gods lived on mountains. We know that the Greeks had Mount Olympus, the Canaanites had Mount Zephon, which later became Mount Hermon. And I'll talk a little bit about that in the segment, but I wanna move on to biblical theology. This is a term used to describe the place of God's presence. It's the place where God makes decisions and then lets allows them to be carried out by divine beings or human beings, or sometimes both. The very first and ultimate cosmic mountain was Eden. And we know that it's called and considered a mountain in addition to a garden because Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen calls it the holy mountain of God. We also see Sinai as a cosmic mountain. This was where God's presence was, and this is where Moses carried out the plans of God. The tabernacle, this was the tent that um, 
that, that the Holy Spirit dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant for a time being while the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. Then later, Mount Zion be- became the place where the temple was built, and that was known as a cosmic mountain. And then ultimately, the church. This is the place where God resides. So we are part of this cosmic mountain philosophy. Um, One more cosmic mountain worth mentioning is in the Upper Galilee. I mentioned it earlier. It's called Mount Hermon. It is mentioned in the Book of Enoch. Now, the Book of Enoch, it was a popular reading in Second Temple Jewish culture, meaning in Jesus's day, the Book of Enoch would have been a very familiar text among the Jewish people. And Enoch identifies Hermon as a place where the fallen angels set up their rule. Now, in modern day, when Jesus's day, this place was a place of Roman escape. They would come, the soldiers would come and relax. And there was a garden there at the base of the mountain and there was water that flowed down and it was a place of ultimate relaxation. And it was also a place where the God Pan was worshiped. So we see Jesus bring his disciples there in Matthew chapter 16. And while this cult worship is going on, there are graphic sexual acts with goats and every kind of evil happening on the side of this mountain next to a huge cave that was believed to be the gates of Hades. And this is where Jesus tells Peter, and I can imagine as he's pointing in this direction, that he will build his church upon a rock and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He literally takes these boys to the cosmic mountain of the fallen angels and declares victory over them. I get chills when I think about this. Jesus was radical. He was in your face. And I can only imagine these young disciple boys with their jaws dropped at what they were seeing and hearing. So that's just a little side note on what the Hebrew people or the people, the ancient people of this day would have heard when they heard the interpretation of the dream that the statue was crushed by a rock and it became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Um, And I forgive, forgive me, it was not a rock, but it was a stone. And that also brings me to thinking that Jesus is known as the cornerstone and the ro- the stone that the builders rejected. And so this is all foreshadowing Jesus. Now, the interpretation of this dream is interesting. And there can be a million different directions that we go on, but I'm going to stick to the most traditional view. The first thing I want to point out is that the metals decreased in value, but increased in strength. That is just something worth noting. The head of gold, Daniel said, um, represented the kingdom of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar under an absolute monarch. His rule was, hmm, how do I say this? The absolute monarch, whatever he said was law could be law. He could change it mid-sentence and it could stand. He had absolute control over this empire. Jeremiah 27 prophesied that God would give surrounding nations over to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the head represented God giving Nebuchadnezzar power, strength, and glory. This entire empire, including his dad's reign and rule over Babylon, was 88 years. The chest and arms of silver represented what we know now, in hindsight, as the Medo-Persian Empire. This will be um, an inferior kingdom under King Cyrus the Great. They were ruled by a law we know from Queen, Queen Esther um, in in that in the book of Esther, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up on my words right now. But we know in Esther's 
book that when the king made a law, he could not go back on it. And so we see that played out in this empire and it was covering a larger territory that lasted longer. The two arms represented the two empires, the Medes and the Persians that came together to defeat Babylon. And this empire lasted 208 years. The stomach and thighs were made of bronze and this represented the Greek empire this was a much more expanded empire under a very young Alexander the Great. The territory expanded and lasted over 300 years. After the death of Alexander, the kingdom ended up being divided into four parts ruled by his four generals, and this kingdom became more democratic. And then the last kingdom mentioned, the legs of iron, was what we now call Rome, or we now know was the Roman Empire. Um, iron crushes and shatters and smashes. It's very strong and powerful. And we know that Rome just did that under their false proclamation of peace known as the Pax Romana. If you did not obey the law of Rome, it was death by sword. And again, it expanded its territory, but it was inferior in power. Now, Daniel chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 says... In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. The dream is true and its interpretation is certain. This period that I call those kings are kind of known as the silent years or the intertestament period of 400 years between the two testaments. The people of Israel uh, wondered where God was and if he had forsaken them. But Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. He is in complete control. And what is this fullness of time? Well, in the days of those kings, God was working behind the scenes. Maybe the people of that day couldn't see it, but he was in complete control. Babylon he used to bring his people to repentance. That was necessary. When that time was over, he allowed the Persian Empire to rise with King Cyrus. And King Cyrus didn't care if people worship God in their homeland. So he allowed God's people to return home and rebuild their temple. And then with the rise of Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire, um, Alexander the Great united the kingdoms through a common language. And then Rome came in and built an infrastructure of roads that are so strong that they are holding still today. So this is so exciting because in the fullness of time, when all of this was complete, God sent his son and everything was in line for the gospel to just radically impact the world and travel at lightning speed. This could have only happened because of all these things were, that were set up that we see play out in this statue. In the fullness of time, God is in complete control. And in the days of those kings, God started setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And I can't wait until that mountain fills the whole earth. So we're going to take a minute to talk about this feat of iron and clay. We know that this is a divided kingdom and part of the kingdom will be strong and iron represented Rome, we feel earlier. And so this is going to be some sort of mixture, but it's going to be brittle. And we know that the people are not going to mix and hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. Now, my personality wants to know what this 
is. We are, it seems that it has not been fulfilled yet. And we are living in this prophetic time where we could actually see this kingdom rise or this partial kingdom from the old Roman Empire. So I have done some research and man, there's a million theories out there. And while I was wrestling with it and really just expecting to come across something where something in me leaped for joy and I knew that was the Holy Spirit talking, this is what God spoke to me. He reminded me that there were prophets before Jesus's day that foretold his coming. And while the Israelites and the Hebrew people, the Bible says, saw through a glass darkly, like they couldn't see the full picture, but God had given them clues through the prophecy. They set up what that would look like in their own mind. And it was just human nature. They had no idea that Jesus would come as a divine son of God. They thought that he was going to be a human that was more like the ancient prophets of old, but would also have... um be in the line of a king and be like a King David and an Ezekiel or a Jeremiah mixed together. And he would be a warrior and he would go and fight against Rome. Israel would claim territory once again, and they would be able to put their king upon their throne in their temple, and they would get to rule and reign the world. That's what they pictured and which would make perfect sense. But because they were so set on it happening that way and not open to anything else that God was doing, they completely missed that Jesus fulfilled every single bit of prophecy. So because of that, it made me not really want to to formulate an opinion or an idea of what this would be. And so I am just settled on looking at the clues, reading scripture, and having discernment when that day comes. I hope you can stand with me on that. So in closing, Nebuchadnezzar has an amazing response. King Nebi actually falls down and pays homage to Daniel and orders that an offering, an incense, be presented to him. Nebi ends up saying to Daniel, your God is indeed the God of gods, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. He ends up glorifying God and giving him all praise that he's due. Daniel got a promotion, was given generous gifts. He became ruler over the province of Babylon and chief governor to all the wise men. And this is going to be amazing because we're going to see Daniel's influence on the wise men when they actually come to find a newborn king that was born in um, Israel. And they actually bow down and worship him as God. And we just see Daniel's footprint, handprint on all of this. Then Daniel didn't forget his friends who prayed with him to receive that vision. And they became managers of Babylon. He pushed for that promotion. So, so far, my biggest takeaway in this book with both chapters together is that we are called to worship God in spirit and truth. This is something that Jesus tells the the Samaritan woman at the well. And when I studied that, a little bit of that sunk in, but I knew I didn't really fully understand exactly what that meant. But she asked Jesus, she's from Samaria, and she says, hey, my people worship on our mountain, Mount Gerizim, and y'all worship at the mountain um, in Jerusalem. Where is the proper way? And Jesus looks at her and says, there comes a day where it doesn't matter where you worship. You are called to worship in spirit. Spirit 
and truth. And that's really what Daniel was living out and walking through. He was a young boy in the middle of an extremely pagan culture. And he was having to listen to the voice of God and discern, discern what battles to fight. Again, I look at them changing his name to glorify a pagan God. And to me and my own flesh, I would have fought that and probably gotten myself killed. He also enters the Chaldean school where there was all kinds of sorcery and magic and witchcraft. And we don't know how he navigates it, but we see that he doesn't put up a fight. But the one thing that he does fight is the food. And so we see a young boy that is spending time with God in prayer and he, God is speaking to him on how to navigate through this world. So I encourage you in your own Christian walk, there are things in God's word that are non-negotiables. I mean, it is just clear as day and it is easy and we have to obey and we have to follow, but we also are are foreigners living in a pagan land. This is not our home. And while we're here, we have to worship God in spirit and truth. We have to hear his voice. We have to discern what are things that we have to die standing on and be willing to risk our lives for. And what are other things that it is okay to assimilate into society somewhat because we want to influence our Nebuchadnezzars of this day. So friends, I thank you for spending time with me. This is an exciting journey. I hope it's testing you and stretching you and making you think, I know it definitely is for me. I pray for favor and influence in your day. I pray that God is, um, is, is speaking to you as you're reading and have a great day. Happy reading.